My guest today is my friend Michael Weiss. Michael is the senior correspondent for Yahoo News. He's the author of ISIS Inside the Army of Terror, and he's got a new book coming out that I am desperately excited to read about the GRU, Russian military intelligence. Michael joins us today to talk Ukraine, of which he is an expert. You are going to enjoy this one, folks. We're going to get down in the weeds a little bit, nerd out a little bit on the military stuff, but it's also a great perspective on not only where Putin and Russia are today, but where a lot of the weird American uh, uh, support for Putin is coming from. There was also maintained what was called an enemy's list. Democrats want Republicans dead. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody. The women with the least likelihood of getting pregnant are the ones most worried about having abortions. On January 6th of 2021, you had tens of thousands of people peacefully protesting. You're the president of the United States. You can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified. It's not a right-wing conspiracy theory. It's not QAnon. It's real. (laughs) I'm Rick Wilson, and this is The Enemies List. So, Michael, welcome to The Enemies List. Thanks for having me, Rick. Well, tell us a little bit about the 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 counteroffensive in Ukraine has launched finally. The big pushback is starting to happen, and um, like all like all military operations, it's messy, and we're still not quite clear on everything that's happening. But it certainly sounds like there is some progress being made on the battlefield for the Ukrainians as the Russians, uh, for the first time, are starting to encounter a broad based uh, pushback to their to their occupation in the eastern part of the country. Uh, and the southern part of the country, I think you're seeing mm. even more movement. Right. So, you know, the counteroffensive got underway last week, and it got off to a very um, anticlimactic and I think overly sensationalized bad start. In that, um, right. one of the uh, armored brigades, the 47th, um, lost a bunch of kit. So, two Leos, Leopard tanks. Uh, which were delivered with great fanfare, thanks to Germany, were destroyed. Um, I think they lost a, a few more of the mine clearing uh, mm-hmm. tanks and a bunch of uh, infantry fighting vehicles, courtesy of Uncle Sam. And all of a sudden, the internet erupts with, oh, my God, it's a, it's a disaster. The counteroffensive is over. Then, you know, you had the obviously the Russian side saying, you see, it's all going to shit, all the, 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 the money right. and, and stuff that the West is pouring into this. Well, look, you talk to any soldier, you talk to any military analyst worth his salt, and he's going to tell you, um, you're going to lose armor in any major yes. offensive, any major military campaign. Against prepared and in fact, defenses. <laughs> correct. And and one of the, um, the, the sort of buried leads of this is even though it was a disaster for this brigade, which by the way, doesn't have the best reputation in the Ukrainian armed forces, uh, one thing has proven to be quite good in that uh, you didn't see dead bodies. And you didn't see many casualties from this sort of calamity, right, or this fiasco. Mm-hmm. And that's because the reason we've given them so much armor is not that we don't we don't expect them not to lose some, but we want to protect Ukrainian lives. You right. know, I mean, Western kit is better than Soviet era Russian kit, and that's why these people are still with us. So, in that respect, I think people needed to kind of lower the temperature and put things in perspective. Now, fast forward several days, and and keep in mind we had this catastrophic. And I'm just going to say it, Russian orchestrated uh, explosion in the right. Kakovka Dam right. and the nuclear power plant, which has resulted in the flooding of 80 plus settlements on both mm-hmm. sides of the Dnieper, uh, Dnieper River, rather, and um, at least 
I think almost a dozen are dead and many casualties. And we've all seen the videos. I mean, this is right. Hurricane Katrina on steroids, except it was man-made, right? We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere. And according to U.S. News & World Report, we're the 25th top-paying career. Make an impact as a fact-seeker and a truth-teller. Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you. Um, mm -hmm. The IC seems to be concluding it was an explosion. And from that, you can derive only really one culprit responsible since the Ukrainians have not had access to the dam and the Russians boasted about blowing it up and also mined and undermined it uh, according to their own social media posts going back to October. So right. that kind of took our eye off, off the ball. Now what's happened is in, in the weekend or at the weekend, particularly yesterday, I was kind of glued to Telegram and trying to track all the movements and, and keep in mind, you know, everything you have to take with a pinch of salt even the people who say, oh, I've geolocated Ukrainians here. Well, that's all well and good, but that doesn't mean that they're in firm control of sure. a village or a settlement, right? I've seen the Ukrainian you know, blue and gold standard hoisted in, on buildings. That's more dispositive, but getting there. Um, but as of today, uh, I'm staring as we speak at a map of Zaporizhia, mm -hmm. and it does look like the Ukrainians have made some, some impressive advances. Um, they are pushing toward what is known as the Surovikin line. It's kind of like the, the Maginot line that the Russians have installed, which is going to right. be the main line of, of Russia's defensive capability. With all the trenches, the mines, Tank the things traps, that the Ukrainians are not meant, yeah, they're not meant to be able to cross. Uh, now, I mean, I don't even know where to begin. One, one thing I can say is one of the reasons it has been um, posited that the Ukrainians are doing pretty well and making this steady progress in the South is the weather is quite bad for Russian aviation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this, uh, this sideways um, sort of operation early at the early start of the counteroffensive, which resulted in the loss of so much Ukrainian armor, one of the reasons for it is uh, the Russians have done their own form of combined arms warfare, right? And they relied heavily on air power, particularly uh, helicopter gunships mm -hmm. uh, to scatter Ukrainian uh, forces. But in the south, the weather's not so great. And e evidently, Russia has not been able to deploy their aircraft uh, with dramatic effect. And if that this pattern holds, it's going to allow the Ukrainians to take more settlements. So uh, let me give you what the official Ukrainian military spokesman, um, Hannah Malyar, uh, has said. And I mean, again, this is coming from the sure, Ukrainian sure. government. But they tend not to say full liberation if they can't prove it and back it up, right? Because right. That obviously can be an own goal. So she says, as of just a bit, an hour, maybe two hours ago, the advance of the troops of the offensive group was 6.5 kilometers. Area of territory taken under control is 90 square kilometers. Seven settlements were liberated. This is all uh, around uh, southern, in the southern region of Ukraine. Right. That's pretty good, you know? And, you know, keep in mind, um, we had two major Ukrainian counteroffensives thus far. Kharkiv, which nobody saw coming. Right. I mean, this was a, a great psychological operation by the Ukrainians because for months they had been forecasting we're going to press to retake Kherson in, in the south, mm -hmm. which is the province directly north of occupied Crimea. And it was a total head fake. And they, they made this mad dash for Kharkiv and it was a rout. The Russians just kind of melted Bailed. away. Right, right. However, the counteroffensive that did take place in Kherson was a long, grueling grinding affair of many, many months. And the Ukrainians lost lots of soldiers and lots of kit. But in the end, Russia did one of its quote unquote goodwill gestures and decided to withdraw 
across the Dnipro so that they only control half the, the oblast now. Right. I think what we're going to see here is something much more akin to Kherson than to Kharkiv. And we're only early days as of yet. But look, I've queried um, some U- European security officials, intelligence of- officers who say that they are more than guardedly optimistic. They are actually quite positive about the way things are progressing as of now. That, so. that seems to be the read. Uh, I, I spoke to somebody the other day in, in the German government is a friend of mine yeah. from years and years who felt like it was it was like of course they're losing a couple of tanks they're going in against dug in Russian positions we're not they had they were pretty sanguine about it in terms of that uh, their only regret was that it still felt like the Russians were outgunning the Ukrainians on artillery uh, in the in the battlefield which is just it, folks the Russians are obsessed with artillery at a level that is undescribable in Western military culture yeah, yeah. They, they are they they are obsessed with it they they have trained they train on it more than probably their their mechanized warfare units they 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 love artillery at a level that we can't even conceive you know we like right. to shoot and scoot they they are not they they like to do big artillery barrages and these they're using the the, the mining systems now etc that it seems like that the artillery is still the sort of differential where the russians have a piece of battlefield superiority that's hard to overcome Right. But I mean, you know, keep in mind for, for every square kilometer that the Ukrainians take, that's a square kilometer farther down the line that they can park a high mm-hmm. Mars and they can also pummel the Russians. And one of the things right. that's come clear very early on in this counteroffensive is that the Ukrainians have been stockpiling their mid-range artillery, right. uh, which we've given them the Gimlers, right? And, yes. and that's for the, exactly this purpose. Uh, and now they've got other things in their arsenal, such as the British Storm Shadow right. cruise missile system. And now the French are sending their own variant on yeah, this, yeah. Um, which can reach any part of all of Ukraine, including all of occupied Crimea and, and as far to you know, the, the eastern border as or far to the east, rather, as the Russian border. So we've seen some displays of, of storm shadows being used, at least it looks that way. But interestingly enough, um, you know, the UK defense secretary uh, said that they've been used 100% effectively thus far. But the Ukrainians haven't actually identified where they've struck with storm shadows. So for some reason, they're, 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 they're keeping this Wonderwaffa, sort of a well kept, <laughs> not so well kept secret, but something they're not looking to do a big PR offensive on just yet. And and look, I'm getting a the juju I'm I'm reading from not just the the, the military itself, but military intelligence. Uh, Kirill Budanov, who has mm. become this sort of I don't know Scarlet Pimpernel figure right. in this war. He's here, he's there, he's everywhere, and um, you know, very kind of mysterious and, and intriguing guy. Uh, he did a video. I think yesterday, where it was just 30 seconds of him dead silent. And this augurs something massive on the horizon. And indeed, I just saw today a a British MP was saying, prepare for something big from the Ukrainian side. Uh, So again, you know, I I remain (laughs) very confident that we, we haven't even seen, well, I mean, in fact, just the, the order of battle, you know, most of Ukraine's uh, brigades that have been trained up not just by Ukrainians but also by NATO right. have not been brought to the fore here. And, and to to be fair, on the Russian side too, they have not brought out the big guns just yet. So I think that these are you know we're still kind of in the experimental phase, not not exactly probing anymore. There's a, a real concerted push down south, especially, but it's we're still sort of the Ukrainians are testing the Russians to see what they do. And then, you know, as Lenin said, you find mush, you keep going, you hit steel, you stop. Right. Right. 
Well, I mean, I think one of the things that has been a flashpoint in this, in the idea of the counteroffensive, and and Zelensky's been pretty steady about not getting too baited on this subject, is is Crimea the full endgame, or is the pushback right now still out of out of Ukrainian territory sans Crimea? It feels like it feels like with cutting off the railroad bridge into into Crimea that there's there's a significant risk factor for the Russians here that they're going to be that they're going to get cut off. Yeah, I, I would put good money on the proposition that Ukraine is 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 headed toward Crimea. Oh yeah, oh for sure, uh, in, for sure. I, yeah, and 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 actually, as a matter of priority, before taking more of Donetsk and Lugansk. Uh, so I was in Kiev about six seven weeks ago. And in addition to meeting Budanov and Reznikov, the defense minister, I met with, you know, commanders from the territorial defense forces and, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, other vested interests who all kind of were hinting to me. Crimea to us is a greater priority for several reasons. One, if you neutralize the Russian military disposition there, including the Black Sea Fleet, right. it's a game changer for our security. It's also a game changer for the regional security. So the whole Black Sea becomes kind of a, a no-go zone for the Russians. Mm-hmm. Number two, there is not much damage to critical infrastructure in Crimea, right? This is not right. a place that the Russians put up a fight to take. This was almost a bloodless seizure of the peninsula in 2014. They have not been pummeling it with artillery because they haven't had to. And the Ukrainians feel that they can force the Russians to flee across the Kerch Bridge, which is the direct line of communication <laughs> from Crimea to mainland Russia, yep. and then probably blow the bridge once the the orcs have all fled. You know, it's it's the, the Sun Tzu uh, yeah, theory right. of the, the Always Golden Bridge. Always give them out. Absolutely. So, you know, and and four or three, I guess I'm up to. I said, what about Donbass? What about they said, look, honestly, Donbass is a black hole. That was the the expression one uh, Ukrainian hmm. military official said to me. I said, well, we don't there's nothing there to recapture. The Russians have destroyed it all. And we don't want to put right. particularly young new minted conscripts, newly trained up by by our, our forces and by NATO, that much closer to the Russian border, because Putin's not going to stop. He's going to keep trying to throw things across the line, right? Why? That, that That is a needless sacrifice, you know, for us. Crimea, though, also has a geopolitical and symbolic effect, right? Absolutely. So all of the elements in the US and in Europe who are, who are prevailing upon Zelensky, okay, Congratulations, you didn't fall in three days. You have a country and some sovereignty here and there. Make a deal now. You're not going to win this war. You know, this is going to reach a stalemate, attrition, whatever. If Ukraine takes Crimea, or even if Ukraine drives the Russians out of Crimea before they're fully in control of all of the peninsula, I mean, all those little hot takes in foreign affairs and 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 you know, the Washington mm-hmm. Post and whatnot, I'm sorry, but like, you know. That shit is dead. Like you, you have lost the argument. They have done the the hitherto considered impossible. And by the way, if Putin doesn't do something like launch WMD or drop a tactical nuke or whatever, which all of the tea leaves people are reading based on media leaks from the the IC suggest these these red lines are are very very blurry, um, not even purplish, but almost non-existent. Mm. If Ukraine manages to take Crimea and really nothing happens. Then the idea that 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 Russia cannot sustain a strategic defeat and, and Ukraine cannot regain even more territory thereafter, and that the West should not continue to help it militarily to do so, uh, it becomes almost a non-starter. And that's how they see it. I think that's right. I think that's. I think that. I mean, I I think it's hard for Putin to hold power if if he loses Crimea. 
I think it's hard for him to lose power if he loses the war, you know? Well, yeah. I mean, and then Crimea would be, yes, that would be seen more dramatically than anything with, I mean, a second tier would be the loss of Mariupol because the Russians invested so much right. in they, the capture of that they city. Bled hard, they've bled hard for it. They bled hard for it. And they, you know, they were going to stage these, these mock Nuremberg trials of the mm-hmm. Azov style defenders there until that, basically they all got traded back to Ukraine. But even that, that shows you like, you know, the Russians say, we must do this. We, we will not abide by X. And then X is done. And then, you know, they thunder and grumble, but they kind of just really shrug and move on to the next, you know, right. line in the sand that really right. doesn't exist. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, we shall see. But I, 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 I return from that trip feeling once again, the Ukrainians know something that the rest of us in our infinite wisdom and perhaps with a lack of imagination in the West do not. And namely, what they know is the nature and the methodology of their enemy because they've been fighting them for 10 years. So let me ask you this question. There was a great sort of to-do a few weeks ago with beginning to train the Ukrainian pilots on the F-16. Um, yeah. I, I, I know from, a, from, from my background a little bit, that's still, you know, that's a six or eight week program, even pretty compressed, even for experienced uh, pilots. When do you think we're going to see more of that, uh, uh, the F-16s rolling in? Have you heard anything different than I have? Because I'm still hearing, they're talking about July. I mean, it's it's interesting. So Reznikov told me something I didn't expect when I met with him. He said, um, you know, we're kind of we want our our fighter jet coalition like we have our tank coalition. But the real priority now is air defense systems, because, mm-hmm. you know, okay. Russia is still waging this kind of campaign of terror using cruise missiles, including their supposedly invincible Kinzhal, uh, Iranian made drones and mm-hmm. Patriot missile batteries, especially around Kiev, have intercepted almost everything. Right. And so right. there was a big emphasis on, on air defenses. So James Rushton, uh, my colleague who's based in Kiev and I, uh, we did a story based on a leaked document we got from the U.S. Air Force, which suggested that several months ago, I think October, November, um, the U.S. Air Force tr- uh, did a test assessment of three Ukrainian pilots. Two were mm-hmm. MiG-29 pilots. One was a Sukhoi-29 a 27 pilot rather. Right. And uh, the assessment was that, uh, hey, we put these guys in a simulator and we noticed they were able to do advanced maneuvers on F-16s uh, that, you know, a lot of pilots, it takes them many weeks or months to know how to do. So the idea of going the transition from a MiG-29 to an F-16, it's not like going from a horse and buggy to a Ferrari, right? There's there's a less of a learning curve there. Right. And the assessment concluded, surprisingly, that it would take four months to train Ukraine, Ukrainian pilots. And they, they do it in this sort of what is what's called a cascading model. Yep. So to train up, you know, say two dozen pilots will take longer than that, but still four months for one pilot to become competent and capable in an F-16 airframe. That's impressive because Colin Call, the undersecretary uh, for policy planning at the Department of Defense, I forget what the title is, but he had testified before the Hill and he said, 18 months to train on F-16s and another 18 months to deliver. Well, a fraction of the time to train, and I reckon probably also a fraction of the time to deliver if you really are interested in you know speeding up this program, right? And now everybody's lining up to say – We've got F-16s to spare. Let's give it. To, let's give them to the Ukrainians. Yeah, I mean, the, the aircraft is a pretty known quantity. It was designed in 1978. I think we're. I exactly. think we're. I think, and there's a there's a very large pool of of 
F-16 instructors out there. They were the large, it was the largest cohort in the Air Force training or Air Force inventory for a very long time. I mean, obviously this war is not going to wrap up in before, before July. What do you think will happen when they actually, if they, if they end up having the ability to go toe to toe more with the Russians on, on counter air, I think it makes, makes the lives of these Kamov pilots, these helicopter pilots, a, a much shorter proposition. If, if we start, because that's actually, it's not uh, my, I spoke to a friend of mine as a former F-16 instructor, a former Air Force colonel who said, I would go helicopter hunting every day rather because yeah. the Russians have burned through an awful lot of their, their high value inventory, but I'd go helicopter hunting every day. And, and I think that would, I think that would probably change the, the ball game yeah. of the battlefield pretty significantly. Well, you know, what's interesting about the, the, the Russian air war thus far is th- they tend to be pretty risk averse. Um, you know, they're, they're using standoff systems. So oh, yeah. they're, they're firing from well behind enemy territory because a lot of them, frankly, at early days were getting shot down. You know, Ukrainians were shooting down uh, MiGs, air fr- uh, fixed wing oh. aircraft using uh, Stinger missiles, yes. which were not supposed to shoot down air, fixed wing, mm-hmm. only rotary wings, so right. helicopters. Why were they f- able to shoot down fighter jets? Because the fighter jets were flying so low because a lot of their bombs were dumb bombs, right? Yeah. So they couldn't target specifically or precisely. Um, and also weather conditions have an effect on these things. So, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it, it, are, are we going to have Western NATO standard airframes available for this counteroffensive? No, I don't think so. Uh, right. that, that's... That's way too optimistic. But there's other chatter now uh, as well. You know, F-16 is sort of a dam break moment. Um, It doesn't mean, though, that that's going to be the only airframe that the Ukrainians will get. Uh, There's a whole discussion taking place in Scandinavia about Swedish Gripens. Gripens were designed as Sukhoi killers, right? Very very capable airframe. Very capable airframes. Um, I've seen uh, journalists who know way more about this stuff than I do talk about um, more rugged airframes, such as the uh, the F eighteen and the F fifteen, mm-hmm. um, which are um, uh, you know, is it single engine or, du- or dual? They're engine? both dual engine. They're both, both dual engine, right? So in case one gets taken out, the other one right. continues to go. But more importantly, because they're rugged, they are able to take off and land on airfields that the Soviets designed and built in 1960s. We've got a lot of, we've got a lot of old F uh, of F 16 or F 15 C models sitting around in, in, in the, in the, in storage that are in, that are, could be brought out of storage pretty quickly. That's a, right now that that's a dogfighting aircraft. I mean, that's, that's, you know, it, it, so yeah, I, comparable I, to the I think twenty nine. It's, it's Gen three exactly, and I, I think the same thing. You know, as with the tanks, you've got Challenger twos, you've got Abrams, you've got Leo ones and Leo twos. Uh, you're going to find probably it's going to be a, a consortium, a hodgepodge of different airframes, and you know the Ukrainians. Ukrainians prove very adaptable and resilient. Um, Mick Ryan, who's a, a retired three star in the Australian yep. Army, I interviewed him at this point, almost a year ago. And I said, you know, there's all this hemming and hawing in the US about we can't give them this, they're not going to, you know, the, the, the absorption rate is going to be too low. He's like, just give them everything and they'll figure it out. That's from a three star, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I know we have people in, in, in our commentariat here who said, no, 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 it's much more complicated than that. And we'll probably point to what happened in Zaporizhia as, as evidence of the fact. But I don't know, thus far, they've proven very adept at learning how to use things uh, including the Patriot missile system, uh, including uh, you know um, 
NATO howitzers, HIMARS. I mean, the, the Russians claim to have destroyed more HIMARS. 4,000 HIMARS, right? Yeah. And there's no evidence that they got even one right. to this day. Everybody's got a morning ritual. I know I do. And I want to feel like I'm getting my day going. I want to feel like I'm moving. And more than coffee sometimes, it's making sure you're clean, squared away, put together. You can get your day started by upping your shave game with Harry's sleekest razor yet, the craft handle. I like to use it because I've got to shave this giant dome of mine every day. So I got to keep it shiny. I have a beard, but I keep my neck clean front and back, do all the miscellaneous trimming. And the new craft handle, it actually is a lot more precision, at least that I found, with the new grip. I really like it a lot. You'll be getting quality shaving for a really amazing price. For now, they're offering the craft handle starter set for 10 bucks. It's a $17 value, so this is something you really should try. And if you don't like it, it's on them, guys. They stand behind the product. They guarantee it. How can you get a hold of the craft handle, the latest, greatest from Harry's? It's simple. Get it delivered to your door for 10 bucks at harrys.com slash enemies list. That's harrys.com slash enemies list. They shoot and scoot with the HIMARS. It's like by the time the counter battery fire knows what's happening, that HIMARS is five miles down the road. They don't totally. They don't stick around for that. So yeah. on another front in this war, and the, it's in fact it, to me, it's one of the most fascinating aspects of this is this weird American online fifth column for Putin and the <laughs> right. Russians, and it's people like Scott Ritter um, and all these other sort of this all this mutant parade of all these incredibly strange characters. Talk to me a little bit about how that is working out for them. I mean. I don't feel like it's penetrated America all that much, but it's certainly become like an increasingly vivid element on the right wing critique of of Ukraine that, yeah. you know, the, the respected arms inspector, Scott Ritter, when they and they right. leave out that he is a convicted child molester. Um, but it's it, he's, he's recently about, he's yeah. now in Russia at the moment right. on book tour. And last I saw, he was complaining that all the pretty girls in white skirts on Red Square won't take photos with him. It's like, dude, yeah. <laughs> if the Russians do anything, it's to right. stay the hell away. <laughs> right. Scott, you right don't want to go where you like to go there, yeah. Scott. It's not your it's not your ball game there. They'll just kill you. Lock um, up your daughters, quite literally. Yeah. But, no, it, it's a weird phenomenon. And, you know, to be honest, there's no single explanation for it. You've got uh, so-called tankies on the far left right. who I think – for, from them, everything derives from if the U.S. is for it, we're against right. it, and vice versa, right. right? And you know, America is the is the primary force the for Satan. evil in the world. Yeah, the, the, it's the Chomskyan view of, of right. world affairs, and you know, there's still an element I think of of those who, if they're not quite nostalgic for the Soviet Union, which at least promulgated a a, a radical revolutionary leftist doctrine, um, they are nostalgic for the Soviet Union countermanding NATO and the United States and sort of it's, it's what's, what's they're using this term multipolar world, which is something that the Duganists and the Eurasian theorists Mm -hmm. like to to talk about, you know, it's America is no longer the, the, the the main hub of action for global affairs. Moscow will be one, Beijing will be one, et cetera. Right. Um, And then you have these, you know, right wing elements who, I mean, you probably, I mean, this is kind of your, bag more than mine, uh, knowing, you know, who, who in used to be considered mainstream in the Republican mm-hmm. Party who've gone duda and have decided that Putin is a 
savior of Christian civilization oh, yes. and espouses <laughs> and embodies everything that we on the right wish to see here. Uh, he hates the gays. He, he's about blood and soil nationalism. He's about keeping migration down. He wants to, you know, any Muslim with a gun must be a terrorist who needs to be liquidated and blah, blah, blah. And then you have, I think, people who are just grifters and charlatans, right? I mean, you know, I've known people, um, you know, people uh, in, a, in this space who have known Tucker Carlson for many, many years when yep. Tucker was, you know, still a journalist and kind of witty and talented. And Tucker is all about Tucker, right? Does he really care? Does he really ideologically align with with Putin? Uh, maybe, maybe there are elements he he just like. But you know, is is it really about owning the libs and leaning into this constituency he has cultivated for himself, which was up until very recently very remunerative and very popular, and the most success he's had on broadcast media, right? Every other TV show has failed except this one mm-hmm. until he got too radioactive even for Fox and too costly in the form of the settlement with Dominion. Um, I don't know the answer to him, but I will say if you look at what the Russian state media has to say, the biggest hammer blow to them in terms of their information operations, which were shit since the start of this war. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've had Russian government sources and intelligence sources tell me we lost the we lost the propaganda from day one. We, you know, it, it's just gone sideways. And the, the Kremlin uh, media apparatus, they treat the loss of Tucker's show as, as, as a huge deal to them, right? right? Like that was their one conduit into normie American politics. Julia Davis and had fact, some amazing clips from that. <laughs> yes. No, and, and most recently, I, I, I'm just doing a piece on, on uh, the Kakovka Dam and you know, why we know or how we know the Russians done it. And I asked Julia Davis, who her whole job is to watch Russian state media and explain the latest bullshit propaganda and craziness. And she said, what's interesting is, you know, the Russian line on on the dam was the Ukrainians did it, but then quietly, not so quietly, actually celebrating the fact and saying, let's blow another one, right? And they said, there's such conflicting lines on the official explanation that at one point, one of these propagandists on TV just said, let's just listen to what Tucker Carlson has to say. So they're deferring <laughs> to him. And, you know, is it is it a mere coincidence that his first Twitter show, he expends enormous amount of energy to basically vilifying Volodymyr Zelensky, the only Jewish president in Europe, mm-hmm. as what, sweaty and rat-like? Right. He's very subtle also, about you know, his anti-Semitism. It's, yeah, it's, it's very subtle. Very subtle. Very subtle. Uh, you know, I think Henry Ford was was a little more, would be kind of mortified by Tucker's uh, innuendo, and then saying, "Oh, we know the Ukrainians did it. Look at Nord Stream two. Look at the, and without any try, attempt to try and unpack what happened. So he's just selling this notion that the Ukrainians are bloodthirsty welfare queens who are ready to drown their own people in misery. Right for what uh, you know for, for for the lulls of it. I, I don't know, but this this does have an impact. And I think, you know, American support has been remarkably, happily solid for Ukraine. But you notice the Marjorie Taylor Greene element, the Matt Gates element is oh, chipping yes. away at this idea. We should stop, basically defund Ukraine, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, let me, I mean, just a couple anecdotes here. One, America has spent two to 3% of its annual defense budget, annual defense budget right. on Ukraine, a drop in the bucket. And by the way, why is that defense budget, what? a trillion dollars or whatever the hell it is, it was designed to fight the Russians, right? right? So the Ukrainians are doing at a fraction of the cost that which we have, have, have spent decades 
building up for and spending innumerable resources to do. Number two, I started asking Republican staffers for you know normal Republican elements in Congress who at least normal in, in with respect to foreign policy who don't take this pro-Putin pro-Russian line, and I said. You guys uh, have to do the audits or at least find sure. out who's doing them and, and do the accountancy, right? Have you noticed any substantial misappropriation of funds for Ukraine? And I think it was uh, McCall's foreign policy advisor who said, no. In fact, you know, you've got major accounting firms in- involved in this. USAID has its own internal mechanism for, you know, accounting for every penny sent. They're doing spot checks in Kiev. Like if you're a Ukrainian nurse who's being subsidized by <laughs> Uncle Sam, right. you get called every Friday. Hey, did you get your check? We want to make sure everything came through, that mm-hmm, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they go and they brief the 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 Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Matt Gateses. And the response they get is, we don't care. We're never going to support Ukraine. So we're going to get right. up on television and say, you know, Ukrainians are fleecing us and stealing all the money. It still blows me away as a as a being part of the what I what what I thought was the last generation of young cold warriors. I mean, because mm-hmm. I came out of you know Soviet studies stuff in the eighties and was at DOD when the wall came down, and as we sort of drew down the the initial iteration of the Cold War, and it just still blows me away that these so called conservatives are in bed with Putin at a level that that it, yeah, and it has infected it, the. Like the weirdos and the and the 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 strange, you know, like Don Bastavushkas and all these weird agitprop types that that are uh, you know American citizens cosplaying as as pro Russian Ukrainian. It just, but it is there is a top line now in the in the political culture with Tucker and Green and Gates and that all that stuff that is very dangerous. I think for for the world because they're siding with an authoritarian invading force over yeah. a nation that that clearly was not they they weren't there provoking the russians to come and invade them they weren't yeah. cr- trying to cross the border so one last thing what do you make of the 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 russian partisan forces that are at play now crossing the border from ukraine and going into russia to cause havoc i mean i know it's low level mostly irrit- irritation partisanship or partisan uh activity but how do you think the russians are handling that i don't think they i don't think they're loving it that much they're not, but you know, Moscow doesn't really care about Belgorod, much right. to the chagrin of the people oh, in Belgorod, Belgorod right? right? I mean, Russian state media has trouble pronouncing the names of some of the settlements that this paramilitary proxy force, and I'll explain why it's a proxy force in a second, has been able to quote unquote take or conquer or occupy. And look, I think a lot of this is um, it's spectacle more than reality, but there's no question. This has been very enervating for the local Russian military disposition and you know border guard and all that. I mean, how did they get across the border? Number one, how did they manage to drive so far? I mean, tens of you know, dozens of, of square kilometers uh, that right. they have run roughshod over the Russians. They've taken POWs. They captured one Wagner operative who has basically defected to their side. <laughs> um, I mean, and look, you know, I have to be very honest with you. This uh, RDK, the one of the two main groups. It's led by a very nasty guy, oh, sure. a, a Russian neo-Nazi with deeply anti-Semitic and you know sort of traditionalist views. Um, I think, if I understand sort of the Ukrainian 
intelligence apparatus. And, you know, I, I got to know their military intelligence service quite well over the last three or mm -hmm. four years in particular, because I'm writing a book on the GRU. And this is right. essentially the mirror image of the GRU. Their whole thing is, oh, okay, you want to come to denazify us? Go denazify yourself. Right. Your Nazis back. And, um, you know, it's, it's kind of a trolling exercise mixed with, you know, there's obvious material yield. So if the Russians have to mm -hmm. divert resources from the front, to go and fortify their own borders in Belgorod, well, that's good for Ukraine from a military standpoint. But yeah, I mean, from a psychological warfare operation, this is humil humiliating to Putin. He right. can't even control his own territory. And, and again, you know, one of the things the Ukrainians like to do is not only call his bluff, but call our own, right? So all of these, again, these, these phantom red lines, if you do this, the Russians will right. do that. We'll definitely nuke well, you. <laughs> we'll nuke you, right? Well, the Ukrainians have, in effect, invaded Russia. And they're still invading Russia. You know, it's been up and down the wicket for the last two or three weeks, mm -hmm. but they're still there in Belgorod to some extent. And wither World War Three. you know, again, the reaction is, eh, who cares about Belgorod? It's, it's a shithole. Like, right. we, don't, we, don't, we don't care. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it, this is the kind of thing that, that the, the Soviet GRU used to do in like the 1920s and 30s in European mm -hmm. cities. They would foment insurrections and right. hire or, or recruit partisan actors from – you know, native uh, members of the country, things like that. So the Ukrainians are playing an old school Russian playbook against the Russians. Nice. Well, all right, Michael, I know we're running out of time here, but I want to ask you one last thing. How do you see the mm -hmm. end game of this war? I know that's a big prediction to ask. As a journalist, I learned, I think the hard way, it's it's kind of a fool's errand to try and make predictions. I mean, mm -hmm. that's what the, the very well-paid think tankers in Washington, D.C. do. And, um, I mean, you can be the judge of how often they get it right. Uh, you know, I would say this, based on reporting I've done for certainly the last 16, 17 months, but even going back a lot further than that, you underestimate the Ukrainians at your own peril. They have shown a remarkable degree of creativity and innovation in how they fight. The social cohesion, which is something that country has not had, at least at the political level. I mean, I was there in January. Zelensky's poll numbers were in the 30s, right? Right. Um, he's popular, uh, not necessarily because people like his policies or like him as a politician, but because they just have to rally around the flag and they want, I mean, every Ukrainian is now in this fight. This is an existential thing. They have all of the metaphysical attributes that um, that, that conspire to make a winning cause in military affairs. And the Russians really, they're not fighting for the motherland. You know, like 18-year-olds sent to the front with a, a, a rusty carbine rifle from World War II or from, you know, daddy's Soviet occupation of Afghanistan. Right. He has nothing to fight for. The salary is crap. The only people that fight and actually care and have a zealotry, almost a cult-like devotion to the cause, but really to their their paymaster are the Wagner guys. Sure. And, you know, Prigozhin is doing this whole weird kabuki theater with the defense ministry, and he's pulling out of Bakhmut and redeploying his forces elsewhere. And honestly, you know, if tomorrow I woke up and the front, the southern front had completely collapsed, meaning from the Russian side, right. <clears throat> I would not be surprised. If tomorrow I woke up and it's still, you know, fighting for every meter of territory from the Ukrainian side, I won't, wouldn't be surprised either. But this idea that they cannot win the war, I think this this is this is folly. I think this is a very um, stupid that. and historically now historically illiterate uh, perspective. And you know, 
people are very well paid and, and well educated to tell me that I'm wrong about this. But again, these are the same people who said Kiev will be sacked would in be, three days. Would be and gone here in we three are days, now right. talking about F-16s, you know, for Ukraine. Yep. Well, Michael Weiss, yeah. thank you, brother, so much for coming on today. I know our audience will love this uh, episode. I really appreciate your time today. And sure. um, we look forward to talking to you again soon. Anytime. I don't play golf. I just don't. I've never been a golfer. I've played a couple of times in my life. I'm just not a golfer. I don't I don't follow golf. I don't play golf. If I'm going to go out and walk around on a grassy surface, it's going to go to go hunt birds. But on the enemies list this week is the PGA. Because fuck you. The PGA this week sold itself to live. Sold itself to the Saudi Arabian uh, investment fund, which runs live. So the PGA tournament is now, with with nary a word to the PGA board, by the way, the PGA tournament is now owned by the Saudis, and they've taken an institution that was a big part of American sports and turned it over to the Bonesaw people, turned it over to the people who took an, a, a journalist and cut his body up with a bone saw because he had offended the acting despot of the Saudi Arabian government, MBS, Jared Kushner's buddy, Mohammed bin Salman. The management of the PGA, the people that put this deal together, and I, I hear there's some like private equity people that are going to make a pile off of this whole flim flam. Last year, when the PGA was looking for support against Liv, sort of taking their taking their lunch, because Liv is much better funded. Last year, when they were looking for help, people rallied around them. The head of the PGA went out and said to the 9/11 families, "I would never, never do this because it's an insult to your memory." And yet, this week, the guy says, "Up, oh, we're doing it. It's, the, it's a good deal for us." Um, so for the PGA, go fuck yourselves. Uh, you should all, the, everyone on the board and, and in the management structure should resign in shame. Um, if this was China, you'd never do this. If it was another country, you'd probably never do this. But apparently, uh, MBS and the, and the guys in Saudi have written a check big enough for you to swallow your morals. So with that, you're on the enemies list. Get your shit together. This has been The Enemies List, and if you've been enraged or engaged or enlivened by this week's episode, let's do something about it. This podcast is part of Resolute Square, a new front in the war to preserve democracy. We were looking for a place to fight back against the MAGA media, and this is it. In addition to this podcast and many others, each week, Resolute Square members will sit down with me and other founders for an intimate meeting of the minds talking about what's really going on behind the curtain of American politics and analyzing the minds and the motivations of the people that are shaping this country's future, good and bad, along with exclusive analysis and insight from our newsletters, which are anything but conventional wisdom. And yes, we'll also have merch to make the MAGA heads in your life furious and more. Become a partner in this fight at ResoluteSquare.com enemies. And folks, if you could like, subscribe, and rate the podcast, I would be enormously grateful. And I cannot tell you how grateful and how heartfelt um, your support has been for this podcast and for these conversations. And we look forward to many, many more. Thanks again. And remember, whatever you do, stay off the list.